0: word and turn to Genesis chapter 6. Genesis chapter 6. We're continuing our study uh, through uh, the book of Genesis. What we typically do here at Park Baptist Church, if you're visiting with us, is we take a a text of scripture and we walk through it verse by verse. Uh, Today we're going to look at three chapters, so it's a lot lot of material to cover, and try to keep it uh, unified. Well, I'm going to begin with, with prayer, asking God's blessing as we hear the Holy Word of God. Join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are sovereign, you are holy, you are righteous, you are almighty and powerful. We thank you that you are the great I Am, the center of the entire universe. And yet, Lord, when we come into your presence, we are made aware of how too often we try to be the center of the world. We take our passions and our preferences and we put them in your place. Father, forgive us for how often we uh, trust in ourselves. Forgive us for how often we turn from your perfect word and live for our own glory. God, forgive us for all the ways that we rightly deserve your wrath. Lord, we thank you that because of your great love for us, you sent the Lord Jesus to die in our place, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring us to God. Therefore, now, boldly, we can ask for forgiveness, knowing that you are God who delights to forgive. So, Father, we ask in the name of Jesus, on the basis of his shed blood for us on the cross, and the power of his resurrection, that you would forgive us from our sins, You would cleanse us from unrighteousness, and you would form and shape us to live more for your glory. Father, we pray for those in our congregation who are struggling. We first pray for uh, Olin Hollis as he's going for surgery tomorrow for bladder cancer. We pray, God, that you would um, just be with the doctors to steady their hands. We pray that you would surround Olin and Louise with with your faith, with faith empowered by the Holy Spirit to believe you in the midst of this trial we thank you for Ken Tedder and for Sandra for being here today. Father, we pray that you would continue to sustain them during their their fight with cancer. God, I thank you so much for how Ken is is continuing to walk with you. We pray, God, that you would continue to use him as a witness to those in his life. Father, we thank you for Devin and Melissa and the great joy and privilege it is to have Melissa back with us. Father, we thank you that there has been slight progress, God, and even allowing them to be with us today. We pray, God, that through the the fellowship of the saints today, that you would encourage their hearts to continue to press on in the midst of this trial. God, we pray that the trials they are experiencing, Lord, uh, pale in comparison to the to the future hope that you've given us in Christ, Lord. We pray that you would enlarge their faith to believe so. Father, we thank you that you are a God who loves to work um, in your church, Lord. We pray for Reggie Hopkins this morning at Calvary Baptist Church. Lord, we pray that as he preaches your holy word, that you would form that congregation in your likeness. God, we do pray that you would grow their church in, in spiritual health, grow their church numerically. We pray, God, that you would allow them to be a, a, a sweet reflection of your holy character. Father, would you pray for the world? God, we pray for um, Syria today. We pray, God, that you would... Allow that land healing. We pray that the people who are called by your name in that land would humble themselves, that you would heal their land, God. We pray for all the refugees who have fled, Lord. We pray that you would allow them to find the welcoming arm of believers wherever they land. We pray that we would be, uh, as a congregation, to have influence, to open our arms with generosity to those who are struggling, giving them the hope of the gospel. And dear God, now we pray for our own hearts as we approach your Holy Word. God, we know we we need you. Lord, we need to hear a word from you. So God, as the Word of God is announced from this pulpit, I pray that you would preach it through the power of the Holy Spirit. We pray that you would take this Word and you would penetrate our hard hearts, that you would soften them, God, with the, with the sweet grace of the Gospel. Lord, we, that you would... Uh, Take the power of the Holy Spirit and you would convict us of sin. Point us to our sin. Make us aware of it, that we can run from it. God, we pray that you would form this congregation in your likeness. Lord, you know the trials of this church. You know all that we're dealing with, Lord. God, I pray that you would watch over us, that you would protect us, that you would um, give us wisdom and grace to deal with transition, God, that you would allow us the desire to continue to love one another more and more, that we would clothe ourselves with holiness and compassion, that we would strive for unity in the bond of peace. God, I pray that the the word that you have prepared for your people today would be a blessing, not only in a a true, um, accurate preaching of the text, but God, to exactly where we are in the heart, to the heart of our congregation. We pray that you would allow this word to help us live in light of your great power, your great sovereignty, and the great compassion you have for us in Christ. We pray, God, that you would use this word for your glory. We ask this in Jesus' precious and holy name. Amen. So the fall of this past year, the rain started. And it felt like the rain was never going to stop. Uh, The rain hit this land so much that it caused the lands down in Columbia and Charleston to overflow with a flood. The South Carolina rain caused millions of dollars worth of damage. Uh, People lost their homes. They were left without power for for weeks. And there were others who didn't just lose their their property, didn't just lose their, their life of collecting things, but they lost their very lives. Now no one who went through that mild, local, yet horrific flood last year would ever turn their experience into a cute children's story. Those who lost their loved ones would not take the message of the flood and dumb down its meaning. During that flood, I I preached a funeral. And one of the family members of uh, the person who passed away lost someone, was carried away with the flood waters. Now, many of you have heard the story of the flood time again. Those of you who have been in church for a while, you've heard the story of the flood. And so often we hear it and we are desensitized to it. So I pray that today the weight of this text would fall upon our hearts. One of the saddest events in human history is the day when the Lord God flooded the earth. Many people either turned, have either turned this dreadful event to a cute children's story or put it in a category of pure fiction. The devastation that we saw in our state, in Columbia, in, in South Carolina, is only a small glimpse of the devastation that God brought upon the earth in the flood. The flood is not fiction. It's a real event showing the consequences of human rebellion. The flood is an awful reality. Now the New Testament writers, inspired by the Holy Spirit of God, believe that the flood was a real event. They believe that the flood was meant to teach the world about the reality of sin and the coming consequences of a sinner who rejects God. The flood was also meant to give hope to believers who were struggling with sin, struggling with trials living for righteousness in a world of rebellion. So I pray that we, we look at this text this morning we look at the flood through the eyes of the New Testament. How did the New Testament writers who were inspired by the Holy Spirit look at the flood? How should we look at the flood today? Well, I think the flood teaches us three things, primarily. First, if you want to follow along with the bulletin provided for you, the first, God punishes sin in the flood. God punishes sin in the flood. Well, we've been working through the, the book of Genesis, and we pick up the story after Adam and Eve took the fruit, after Eve was being deceived by the serpent. Uh, chapter 4 is when Cain uh, murdered his brother Abel out of, out of jealousy. In one generation, we go from eating a a fruit that God told us not to eat to murder. We see in Genesis chapter 5, just look with me, turn and look at your Bibles in Genesis chapter 5, and just see the refrain again and again showing that God kept his word in punishing Adam. That his, I'm going to go from the pulpit mic again. I tried, y'all. Look at chapter 5 of Genesis and just see this refrain. At the end of verse 5, and he died. At the end of verse 11, and he died. End of verse 14, and he died. End of verse 17, and he died. The refrain is meant to shock you again and again as you read Genesis 5. In the beginning, the world that God made, man was not supposed to die. And yet we see it again, and he died. To remind us of the great consequences of Sin. We pick up our text today in Genesis chapter 6, 5 through 8. Look at how bad the world had become. And the Lord saw the wickedness of man that was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out whom I have created from the face of the land, Man and animals and creeping things and the birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. The sin of man grieved the very heart of God. Beloved, always remember that your sin, the sin of those in your life, grieve the very heart of God. God does not take sin. Lightly. He hates sin because sin destroys the relationship, the perfect relationship that he has with his creatures, with his creation. Sin causes devastation in our lives. A righteous and holy God must hate sin. A good God has to punish sin. And you'll see how he does it in this text. The story of the flood formally begins in Genesis 6-9. Remember, that, as I've said before, the, the Toledot formula in Genesis, the beginning of a new generation, is the, is the beginning of a new segment or a new story in, in, the, in the book. So we read in Genesis 6-9-13, These are the generations of Noah, implying a new section, a new unit in Genesis. Now Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. And Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt. Almost the exact opposite what we read in Genesis 1, where he says, And behold, it was very good. Now behold, it was corrupt. For all the flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I had determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. God will deal with sin by dealing with sinners, by destroying them with the earth. God continues to explain to Noah how he is going to destroy the earth. Look at Genesis 6:17. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. Now when you read that, that is not a cute story. That is a terrifying reality of those who reject a holy and awesome God. The dramatic event of the flood unfolds under the direct hand of God. Those of you who have done any study on the flood, you'll realize there's other ancient religions who, who have created their own stories um, that are very similar to the flood. Uh, the most popular one is the Epic of, of Gilgamesh. Uh, the Epic of Gilgamesh speaks of the gods being angry with human noise and overpopulation. When the flood waters begin, they were frightened, the gods of Mesopotamia, of the deluge. They shrank back and, and went up to Anu's highest heaven. The, the biblical narrative. The biblical story of the flood is far different than the, the ancient other ancient texts. What we see in, in the biblical account is that God is directly behind what happens in the flood. The Lord who, who caused it to rain for 150 days is the same God who sent the wind to allow the, the, the water to subside. The theme of God's sovereignty, God's complete control of the universe is woven through every text in the book of Genesis. God sends the rain. Look at Genesis 7, 11-12. In the six hundred year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day, all the fountains of the great deep burst forth, and the windows of the heavens were opened, and rain fell upon the earth forty days and forty nights. The flood continued forty days on the earth, uh, Verses 17-24. to The flood continued 40 days on the earth. The waters increased and bore up the ark. And it rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth. The ark floated on the face of the waters. And the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. The waters prevailed over the, above the mountains, covering them 15 cubits deep. And all the flesh died that moved on the earth. Birds. Livestock The rain came and there was nothing that anybody could do to stop it. Listen, when God decides to act, there is nothing you can do to stop his mighty hand. God is sovereign and in control of all things. Noah's neighbors were eating and drinking and enjoying life. They lived according to their own reality. Eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. They they, they live the Yola life. You only live once. This mentality that's creeping up in our age. And although they were living in their reality, they were not living according to the reality of God. The flood is an example, a preview of the final judgment. The flood is an awful reality, but the Bible doesn't give the accounts of those who perished, but we can imagine what they dealt with. We've seen enough of tsunamis and floods to see the pain of people who lived through those events. We can imagine a a father reaching for his son, having his son carried away by the waters. We can see a, a, a daughter reaching up for her mother's hand before she was wiped away by the flood. We can imagine the dread of those knowing that there was no hope but they were going to die. The New Testament speaks of the judgment of the flood as a sign, as a picture of the judgment that is going to come. Jesus Christ himself said these words in Matthew 24, 36 through 42. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven nor the Son, but the Father only. For as it were in the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage until the day that when Noah entered the ark, they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then two men will be in a field, one will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken and one left. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. Those in Noah's days were not prepared for the flood. Are you prepared for the coming of the Son of Man? I remember when I was in college, my grandmother, uh, she was a lifelong Lutheran. Uh, she sent me a letter quoting this passage. And I was I was young in my faith. I came to really start walking with the Lord when I was 20. and started talking to my family about Jesus and uh, talking to my grandma about Jesus. And she read this passage, and she was terrified. She was terrified. Does this mean that one is taken and one is left, that that half the people are going to perish? I mean, Do you feel the weight of the judgment of God coming? Do you see how God is going to punish sin? The question is, are you ready? Are you ready for the coming of the Son of, of Man? The day when your secret sins will be disclosed days when your bank accounts will be revealed. When your inner thoughts will be made known. Are you ready? That's the purpose of the flood. The purpose of the flood today is to give us a foretaste of what's coming. Are you ready for the coming of the Son of Man? God will punish sin. In Peter's day, there, there were those who were questioning whether or not Jesus Christ would return. There there are many today who believe that Jesus Christ is not coming back. Therefore, they can live any way they want. They can do anything they want. Listen to what the Apostle Peter writes. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were beginning from, from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlooked this fact, that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of the water, and through the water by the word of God, and that by means of these the world that they existed were deluged with water and perished, speaking of the flood. But by the same word, the heavens and the earth that, are na- that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. The Bible is very serious when it comes to the judgment of God. There is a day coming when destruction will befall the ungodly. And the key question is, are you ready for that day? The great riddle of the Bible is, how do we deal with being ungodly? Because we, we, we know that probably those in, in in Genesis 6, we may have been there. We may live according to the evil inclinations of our own hearts. So not only does God promise punish sin in the flood, secondly, he protects the saints in the flood. He protects saints in the flood. So we know the flood teaches us that God will punish the ungodly. But it also teaches us that God will protect his saints. God will always be with his people. God will protect those who trust in him. Do you remember the very beginning of the narrative? It said that Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. It doesn't mean that Noah was perfect, but in the Old Testament, when we talk about righteousness and blamelessness, the character of Noah was that of righteousness. He wasn't a perfect man, as we'll, we'll find out, but he was a, a righteous man. He lived in honor of the Lord. He literally walked with God. God protected Noah from the coming disaster. Look at verse chapter 6, verse 13. We're going to continue to look at the Bible, so if I were you, I'd have it open. Genesis 6, verse 13. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them from the earth. Therefore, he says to Noah, make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it in length. The length of the ark, 30 cubits. The breadth, 50 cubits. The height, 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark. Finish it to a cubit above. And set the door of the ark in its side. Make it with lower, second, and third decks. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing, of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. you shall be; They shall be male and female of the birds according to their kinds of the animals according to their kinds of every creeping thing on the ground according to its kind two of every sort shall come every sort shall come into you to keep them alive also take with you every sort of food that is eaten and store it up it shall serve as food for you and for them noah did this he did all that god commanded him god spoke to noah Noah listened and obeyed God. This will always be the sign of the righteous. When God speaks, do you obey? Not do you hear, but do you obey? Noah was a righteous man because when God spoke, he heard and obeyed. When God speaks, his people listen. Jesus Christ himself said, My sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. Noah showed that he was righteous in how he responds to the word of God. The question for you and for me is, do we do the same? When we hear the word of God like we're doing this morning, will we obey? Well, Noah continued to demonstrate his trust in the Lord when the day of judgment finally came? Look at Genesis chapter 7. In verse 1, Then the Lord said to Noah, Go into the ark, you and all your household, for I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. Take with you seven pairs of all clean animals, the male and his mate, and a pair of the animals that are not clean, the male and his mate, and seven pairs of the birds of the heavens also, male and female, to keep their offspring alive on the face of all the earth. For in seven days I will send rain on the earth, 40 days and 40 nights. And every living thing that I have made, I will blot out from the face of the ground. And Noah did all that the Lord had commanded him. Noah was 600 years old when the flood of waters came upon the earth. And Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him into the ark to escape the waters of the flood. That's T, Of clean animals and of animals that are not clean. And the birds and everything that creeps on the ground, two and two, male and female, went into the ark with with Noah, as God had commanded Noah. And after seven days, the waters of the flood came upon the earth. Look at verse 15, chapter 7. They went into the ark with Noah, two and two of all flesh, in which there was the breath of life. And those who entered, male and female, of all flesh, went in as God had commanded, and the Lord shut him in. You see how the Lord is directly involved in this? The Lord shut Noah and his family in. The literary climax in the Hebrew really is Genesis 8, verse 1. So if you're going to study this in in the Hebrew, it's pretty clear that Genesis 8, 1 would be the middle of the, the story. It says, But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind blow over the earth, and the waters subsided. God remembered Noah. Noah honored God and God remembered Noah. Now the Apostle Peter, in preaching and teaching this text, used the words of the flood to encourage the church who was being persecuted in the world. We, if we are going to live for the Lord in this life, we are going to be persecuted. That is going to happen. So when it happens, we can look at this flood narrative to find encouragement. Look what Peter says. He says, if if he, God, did not spare the ancient world, but preserve Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials, to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. So when you came into church today, thinking about the flood—a story you've heard time and time again—well, was there something in your life right now that you're dealing with? Are you dealing with a trial, a, a struggle? Now, the trial that, that, that the Bible is talking about here are, are not the trials that you have brought upon yourself because of, of wayward living. Now, there's, there's hope there. We'll get there in a moment. But what are you experiencing today that, that, that is causing strife in your life? Well, whatever that is, God says. He will protect the the godly. He will be with the godly as he was with Noah. He will protect us. He will protect the godly from an unjust government. He will protect the godly from unjust accusations. God will protect the godly ultimately from himself on the day of wrath. Let's close with this last point. God promises salvation after the flood. God promises salvation after the flood. Now we know that the flood is an awful reality of the consequences of sin. However, the story does not end only in judgment, but in hope. There is always a promise of hope in the midst of judgment. Listen, sometimes we don't like hearing the The ferocity of God's claim against sin. Sometimes it causes us to feel uncomfortable. But listen, every time God pronounces judgment, there's always hope. And there's always grace. Genesis 8, 20. says, Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. How he's going to deal with men's sin in the future. Human beings will still have hearts that are inclined to evil. He says it right there. He says, your hearts, the, the hearts of human beings will, from their youth, always be inclined to evil. We'll see that in Noah's drunkenness, one who was a righteous man. And we'll see that in the pride of the Tower of Babel. So what changed? God is shifting from dealing with humanity, hear me, with strict justice to pure grace. He's changed from dealing with society from pure justice to strict grace, pure grace. He'll begin to establish his kingdom on earth through Noah and Noah's descendants. Now God makes a covenant with Noah which means which reminds us of, of, of Genesis 1 and the covenant that God made with Adam, but he, he points us forward to the covenant, With the new Adam, Jesus Christ. Look at Genesis chapter 9, 7 through 17. God says to Noah, And you, be fruitful and multiply. Increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you, and your offspring after you, and every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark. It is for every beast of the earth I will establish my covenant with you, that never again shall all the flesh be cut off from the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is a sign of the covenant that I make between you and me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth, when I bring clouds upon the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. The waters shall never again come become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, "This is the sign of the covenant." that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. Now God repeats the Hebrew word beret, which means covenant, seven times in this monologue. It's to remind the reader that the covenant that God makes is perfect, all-encompassing. This covenant is not conditioned like the one to Adam. God places no conditions of obedience for maintaining this covenant. For he explicitly says, man will continue to have evil hearts. And yet God will keep his covenant. God offers the, the sign of the covenant with a rainbow that he hangs in the sky. I mean, how beautiful when you when you see those, those colors. It's, it's, a, it's an amazing sight after the rainfall. Now, Israel would have seen the bow as a sign of war. So think about the imagery with Israel. God no longer is at war against humanity, but he hangs his his bow, he hangs his war bow into the clouds. No longer directed at humanity, but where is it directed towards? It's directed towards heaven itself. God has offered peace to this world, no longer aiming his bow at the world, but aiming the bow at his own heart. God will fulfill his covenant by taking the bow and shooting the arrow at his own son. He will send his son to the cross to be pierced for the transgressions of man. We have hearts. We all in this room have hearts that are inclined from our youth to do evil. The problem with us is not that we need new commands, the problem with all of us is that we need new hearts. And now through the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ, God has offered us peace. For if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed, the new has come. The old world of strict judgment was washed away with the flood, so now if anyone returns from their sin and trusts in Christ, they will be a new creation. The story of the flood is not only a story of judgment. It's a story of hope. It's a story of second chances. Those of you who came in today feeling the weight of your own sin, feeling the the, the the regret and the shame of the past mistakes that you've done, said that if you come to Christ, if you turn from your sins and repent, God will make you a new creation. God will heal your life. He did it with this world, He will do it with you. That's the way that the scriptures speak of it in, in second in first Peter chapter, three, listen to how this arrow was pierced, the righteous one, giving us peace, the blood of the cross. First Peter three, verse eighteen. John read it earlier. For Christ also suffered, once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but being made alive in the spirit, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Not a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven at the right hand of God with angels and authorities and powers having been subjected to him. God brought Noah safely through the waters, so that now through repentance and faith we may be cleansed when we appeal to God for a new heart. When we appeal to God to be to be cleansed and purified, God will do it because He did it to Noah. So He'll do it for us. Those of us who, who come to Christ in baptism are buried in our old life and raised to walk in the newness of life. Cleansed. Purified. The flood shows us that God will punish sin. He will protect the godly who turn and trust in Him. But the flood ultimately shows that the only way we will be ready for the coming of the Son of Man on the day of judgment is if we appeal to God for a new heart through faith in the coming Son of Man, Jesus Christ. The flood is an awful reality of judgment. And the cross is the awesome reality of the grace of God. God has already paid our penalty. He's already put our judgment upon the Son. God promise, promises salvation through the coming Son. So God has hung up His war bow and now offers you peace. He offers you peace through the shed blood of of his own sin. He offers it to you. Will you accept it? Will you accept the offer of peace. Made by a gracious and loving God. Let's pray. Father. When we look at the harsh reality of judgment and sin. We know what we deserve. We know that we like those who perished in the flood, deserve to die. And yet you have chosen not to treat us as our sins deserve, but you have given us grace and mercy. You have turned from dealing with us with strict judgment and shown us pure grace. So, Father, I pray that as we walk out today, as we sing our last song, that you remind us, That you would remind our hearts of your covenant, of the new covenant in your blood that offers peace for all who would come and trust in you. Dear God, I pray that you would encourage the hearts of your people to hate sin, to love righteousness, and to glory in the coming Son of Man, Jesus Christ. Help make us ready, Lord, for that day. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.